Welcome to The Village Lantern, a podcast for families living with hidden challenges such as autism and other neurodiverse conditions, and for anyone else wanting to understand, love and support. Our mission is to build understanding, empathy and love for families living with one or more children who have hidden conditions that make life harder in one way or another. We call this Extra Zing. I think there's a huge focus on therapy for the child. If I'm honest, and I won't be popular for saying this, but if I'm honest, I sometimes think that that's not always the thing that people need. Mm. I mean, I certainly I certainly think there's a role for speech therapy, occupational therapy, psychology, physiotherapy, what you know, drama therapy. But really what parents need is practical support, self-care, sleep, mm. those, you know, mm. all the things that they're often denied. And... Of course, we all bring our own experiences of parenting to parenting and we all bring our own schemas and ideas about life to parenting. And quite often with parenting, we don't quite get what we thought we would. You know, we also often are parenting with somebody else who has brought in their own ideas and their own experiences too. So I think it's a really complex thing. And there are very skilled psychologists out there who can support parents in navigating all of that, particularly if the child has a disability or a complexity. Episode 8, Education, Communication and Understanding with Deep Care and Love. Sarah Wright started her career as a high school English teacher and went on to become an educational psychologist. Sarah spent 16 years at a special school for children with intellectual disability and comorbid disabilities, a place she calls her true love. Sarah then qualified as a clinical psychologist and continues to work with special needs kids as well as with parents and young adults with extra zing. Sarah is kind, funny and thoughtful and is determined to see the whole person beyond any label or diagnosis. She has a beautiful gift for connecting with love, generosity and a palpable commitment to helping humans be understood, cared for and loved. Hey, villagers. Hope you're going well. Jordan's not here for this intro this morning. Uh, He's in Sydney building his fabulous organisation, Care Now, and by all accounts going really well. So we're super excited for Jordan and the Care Now team. Wish them all the best. I'm super excited. I know Jordan will be too about this episode with Sarah Wright. Sarah is a psychologist. She's actually my psychologist and I found her because she's an expert in, amongst other things, autism. And I wanted to work with her because I was seeking someone to help me work through the challenges of parenting, a gorgeous little person with autism. And of course, she's become very much more to me as a psychologist than just around her expertise with autism. Uh, Sarah also has expertise in ADHD, which has been a wonderful help for me. So I hope you like this episode. I'm sorry this intro is nowhere near as fun without Jordan here, but we'll look forward to having him for the next one. And we're starting to get ready for season two. So I hope you're excited. Thanks. Love you all. Bye. 
Well, today, welcome. We're very excited to have <laughs> Sarah Wright here with us. Welcome, Sarah. Hello. Thank you. Uh, and Jordan is also, um, um, we're doing the right thing by Melbourne COVID standards. Jordan is on the phone so that we're all staying COVID safe. How are you going, Jordan? Yeah, yeah, doing well, doing well. Uh, here, just in the comfort of my own room, but very excited to be awesome. chatting today with, with Sarah. Awesome. Um, so I sure if I've mentioned before, I think I have mentioned something about one of the therapies that I've been working through and I'm pleased to say that Sarah is my psychologist. I found Sarah through um, my daughter Millie's psychologist because I wanted someone who understood children with autism because it was one of the things I really needed a lot of support with at the time. Um, And so I was so thrilled to find Sarah who works, and you can tell us more, Sarah, about your Mm -hmm. job um, in a special school, has a really deep understanding of autism in children, but also is a psychologist for adults. And so, you know, being able to kind of meet both of those needs was amazing. Sarah, could you tell us just a little bit about your background? I can. So I trained as an educational psychologist in the UK, having taught high school English for a number of years, and was pretty attached to the idea of carrying on working in education, then came to Australia and initially did some casual leave teaching in a number of special schools. And from there kind of found Port Phillip, which was a, which was, has become a great love of my life. And then sort of worked in a dual capacity as casual relief teacher and also psychologist. Then after I had my own children returned as a ed psych there or as a psychologist there And since then have qualified as a clinical psychologist, so work more generally with um, people, not not just on sort of developmental issues, yeah. So in the school, are you working as a teacher or or as a...? No, I'm working as as the psychologist, yeah. okay. Sarah, when you said you started off doing that relief teaching at Port Phillip, what was it that drew you sort of into the special needs community and really engage your interest? I think it's a good question because it's quite an unusual area for psychologists to go into and it's a real view of mine that if you're going to do a developmental psychology degree, you really need to know these kids well. Um, I think it's the fact that um, you have to look at these at, at these children or these young people outside of the definitions of their diagnosis so the kids at Port Phillip all have an intellectual disability. Probably about 40% of them also have autism, but predominantly the disability is intellectual disability. But there's such a wonderful kind of array of personality factors and just different traits that make them that make each child so individual and so different. And it's not really possible to almost come up with strategies that are generic with with these kids or as or even with any kid really but just because their personality factors and their life experiences are so different and we, their parenting as well would you say i mean to what degree the way that different kids are parented absolutely. comes out in them absolutely so we have some kids who um you know and this is a general comment outside of um, port philip this you know there would be kids who come to um their experiences with insecure attachment or really good attachment. There would be kids who've maybe experienced some sort of trauma, whether it's birth trauma or something else more significant. There's parents who have had their own experiences or who are um, triggered by particular things or, you know, 
experiences from their own childhood too. So, and also the the family makeup, isn't it? So if you've got mm. if you're an only child versus if you're one of five children, mm. then your home dynamic and your parenting experience is going to be different just by virtue of what else is happening in the home. Of course, and we also have a number of families who've got more than one child with a, with a significant disability, mm. um, and you know quite quite a lot of the focus has to be on the child who doesn't have a disability too. You know, mm. so there's a whole sort of unpacking of layers that's really complex. Which is why I thought it was so important to have this interview with you because Jordan and I have talked a lot about what, there's a couple of things we want to do with this podcast. One is about building awareness and understanding so that the Mm -hmm. the common person on the street who otherwise wouldn't come across it might consider that that might be going on for a child that they see behaving in an unexpected way. Mm -hmm. But I'm also really determined to um, bring care to parents because I think that while we shoot our children off to all sorts of therapy and all Mm -hmm. sorts of support, actually the parents often are really struggling as well with all the different challenges that come with normal parenting Mm -hmm. and plus this extra zing, we Mm -hmm. call it. Um, And so I I guess one of the things that I wanted to explore with you was um, what are the sorts of things that I'm sure they're very varied but that parents living with kids like us, mm-hmm. like ours, mine and the ones that you know and the ones that Jordan works with, that what are the sorts of things that parents particularly struggle with beyond sort of the normal parenting mm-hmm. challenges? Well, I think trust is a huge one and I think the, the very genuine difficulty of children to be left with or for parents to leave their children with relatively unknown people, particularly because quite often it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there have been situations where carers have just kind of up and left because the child's behaviours are too challenging or too unknown. Um, so trust would definitely be one. And obviously a lot of the kids that I work with can't communicate verbally. And so there's also a real sense of anxiety about if anything was to happen or there was a situation where the child was anxious, they can't really communicate that. I also just think exhaustion is a really, really significant Factor. And sometimes parents can't even quite articulate the stress they're under because it's just so overwhelming. Mm. And, and, you know, we quite often have a situation with sort of NDIS meetings or um, sort of meetings that, with agencies that are really wanting to help families that the parents kind of almost say, oh, no, it's fine or, you know, no, no, we're doing okay. And you, you kind of have to go, actually... You might be doing okay, but it's not okay. <laughs> the situation is not okay. It's not, and I find um, from my experience, and we've had this a few times, you mm-hmm. know, you come and say, how are you? And sometimes I'm like, I don't know. Mm. Or sometimes I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm mm-hmm. fine. And I believe it. And mm. sometimes I am, but sometimes it's not. And I think what happens with me is that I, if I, if I don't say I'm fine, mm-hmm. then everything will feel like it's going to fall apart. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, it's almost like I don't have time for that. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. pushing it all away. And I think probably a lot of parents, I mean, not just parenting children like us, but that have other stresses in their life are probably Mm. living with the same kinds of things. Of course. Of Um, course. And to your point about communication, Jordan has um, a beautiful analogy that we talk about in another podcast. Jordan, do you want to talk about the 1001 ways of communication? Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. I think it'd be really interesting to hear from you, Sarah, sort of on what you think about it. But one of the main kind of training principles that we work with when a new support worker comes on board the team 
is they introduce them to this concept of like Reggio Emilia, which is a early intervention childhood education approach that we've sort of adopted a few of the principles when chatting about how we build relationships with children with special needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things I talk about is recognizing there's a concept of the 1,001 voices of children and how one of them is their verbal ability and to tell you what their needs and wants are and how they're feeling. But then there's, you know, the 1,000 other ways that they communicate. Um, and we do an exercise where we start basically like from the top of our head and move down to our toes and talk about every single way, you know, a child or, or someone who's nonverbal is able to communicate, you know, the way they're standing, the way they're breathing, the way their skin is flush, you know, anything. There's really honestly hundreds you know, a thousand. Mm-hmm. What's been your understanding on how individuals who are nonverbal communicate best and, and ways that people should understand how they can communicate effectively and authentically without the use of just verbal language? Um, I think it's it's one of the things that makes my job particularly interesting because kids are always trying to communicate. And I think about the most what we would probably say severely disabled kids within Port Phillip and we might use an approach like intensive interaction where we're just really helping kids understand the power of communication. So when they flex their arm or they, you know, clap their hand or whatever, we might join in with them. In just the, doing the same thing? Just do, doing the same thing, maybe building on it, maybe repeating it, doing it in a slightly more dramatic way. And we just sit with them um, and do that, and, and sometimes you see kids in the playground actually just doing that together. So they they sit they're sitting next to each other and they're just engaging for half an hour in a kind of copying of each other's actions and laughing and, and you know in, enjoying each other's company. So I think that's a really powerful thing. Something else I would say is that processing the interaction, really slowing down, looking at kids, um, not expecting an answer quickly, even if it's a nonverbal answer. <laughs> You know, so just being able to kind of sit with them and read their body language. And I think also sometimes just just validating the fact that they're trying to communicate. You, you know, we can't always know what kids are trying to say. I remember a kid once, uh, a, a nonverbal kid kind of grunting at me and sort of pointing and I could not work out what she was trying to say at all. And I remember just saying to her, thank you so much for telling me that. Thank you. Um, and she kind of looked at me and she kind of nodded and walked off and although in some ways it was inauthentic because I didn't know what she was telling me I could see that what she was trying to do was communicate something and we need to honor that and see that um you know these these kids are at different levels of that understanding Uh, yeah and their parents probably have a better understanding of their signs so parents who would be familiar with those maybe Mm -hmm. very subtle signs and then as you say they send them into an environment feeling quite anxious about the fact that other people won't necessarily understand mm, those signs. Right. And that I, my experience with Millie is obviously not the verbal issue but also that same sim, similar thing in that mm. there are things that she will do that will indicate that her, she's getting elevated mm-hmm. and it, until the teachers start to understand those, they can't mm-hmm. see it coming. Mm-hmm. And um, I just remember she's now at her fourth school, I've talked about that, mm-hmm. and that feeling of walking away from the first three schools who were all trying their hardest, mm-hmm. but I just the anxiety for me walking away mm. thinking that I was leaving her mm. with the wolves, not mm-hmm. the, you know, not mm-hmm. that they teach, but the, it, the fact that she was so vulnerable and mm-hmm. so anxious and so scared mm-hmm. was a horrible, horrible experience. Mm-hmm. And when we first got to our new school, mm-hmm. I said to the principal or the teacher, I can't tell you 
what a difference it is for me to walk away from this school feeling like I know she's safe here. Mm-hmm. That um, mm-hmm. the anxiety of your child not being mm-hmm. understood. Mm. And I think that's the power of a school like Port Phillip is that the kids are understood and they are safe and they're safe to be themselves and they're safe to be able to communicate in the in the way that in the way that they do. And that might be a kid running down the corridor, opening the principal's office, tearing in and rushing out again, you know, in the middle of her having a meeting. And that's that's okay. That's kind of a, you know, a, a feeling of comfort that that child has in being there. And there's also yeah. a number of kids as well who are very echolaic in their language, who have very limited kind of scripts to communicate things with, but actually do it, use those scripts very, very well. So they might notice um, that when they say a particular thing, they get a, a response from an adult, you know, maybe humour or something like that. And then they they probably then overuse it, but they will use it to sort of get that response as well. Um, and, you know, yeah, so that's, that's also sure. the personality of the of the kids. Yeah, absolutely, Sarah. And I think something that I'd love to ask you about is, you know, people people have respect and people want to be able to communicate and, and treat mm-hmm. individuals with special needs, you know, with, with dignity. And I, I think that sometimes people, the barrier to effective you know, communication and comprehension is people are sometimes a bit scared of someone who's nonverbal, that they, they can't work them out. They mm-hmm. don't really know how to interact with them. And it, mm-hmm. it ends up with a kind of distance because honestly, it is, you know, from what I've seen is that first step of interaction is just like daunting because it's just something people haven't experienced before. Do you have some maybe tips or experiences on effective ways to, you know, understand someone who's nonverbal and to communicate with them in a, in a friendly and, and healthy way? Look, I think it's, it's really tricky because also a lot of our kids will communicate through violence and aggression um, because they're frightened. You know, potentially they're frightened of someone new looking after them or someone unknown looking after them. Or potentially they have that they're, they're triggered by things that that person is unknowingly doing, like, you know, using a particular word or having a deep voice or, you know, things out of their control that it's not their fault. I think it's really um, kind of knowledge and, and sort of really communicating with the parents about things. I think it's probably um, gradually transitioning, doing some respite with maybe within the home initially, kind of getting that sense, doing, uh, starting with activities that are really preferred activities for, for that particular kid, yeah? But I also think there's a lot of stuff that is used that is too generic. So, you know, even though picture communication symbols are really helpful and communication devices are really helpful, they're only helpful if you know the individual. And so I think there's a bit of a, a difficulty there in the sense of, you know, potentially people holding up a, a, a picture communication symbol in the kid's face and kind of, you know, hoping that in some ways that they're going to give them an opportunity to communicate. I think just sitting in people's presence is sometimes quite a helpful thing. But these kids, you know, some of these kids are frightening because they are erratic um, they're frightened. You know, there's also another sense that, you know, mental illness is actually something that's significant for a lot of, lot of our children with invisible disabilities or disabilities. There's a high correlation. So it's, it really is a question of sort of really getting to know them, I think. 
And Jordan, I mean, when you go into a new family, when a family calls you and says we want someone to help you with our, our child, how mm. do you, what are your strategies that you train your carers with or what do they come back with sharing that's effective in doing that, getting to know the child, getting to know the environment and the parents' yeah. preferences? Well, look, I can share for me personally as well because basically my role within the organisation is when a family calls and says, you know, we're looking for a young support worker to come work with my child, I'll say, sure, and then I'll go there. And I'll spend, you know, time with the family in person mm-hmm. and getting to know them. And therefore, like, I, I go into a lot of families and meet a lot of kids. Mm-hmm. And I've had to, you know, really work on developing how, how to better communicate and, and understand really strongly. Um, because kind of what you said, the best thing, you know, obviously is a really a gentle introduction and mm-hmm. taking the time. Maybe it takes weeks to build that you know, respect. And I think that's really mm-hmm. pertinent. But to me, you know, and to people maybe only having one sort of interaction, I think the thing that I've really developed and, and it's been a process over the, the last few years is really making the start, uh, the introduction as normal as possible mm-hmm. and relaxed. Um, and when I walk into a house, I'm not trying really hard mm-hmm. or I'm not scared. I really mm-hmm. will be relaxed and gentle in my introduction mm-hmm. and treat that individual, you know, as I would anyone and based on how they respond to me, you know, I may then, you know, be a bit more animated and excited and look to play some games or if there's mm-hmm. hesitation, then I'll I'll just, you know, remain calm and gentle and, and like you said, in their presence. But I think that's really a big tip that I also say is, you know, when you go to meet anyone, after your initial response, you're gonna to respond to what they're giving you, what mm-hmm. how they're reacting to you and you'll adapt accordingly. And I think the baseline is just being relaxed and as authentic and, and uh, in inverted commas, as normal as possible. Um, and I think that's a lot about kind of removing that being scared or fearful of, I don't know, you know, what this person could do because they can't talk and really just being, um, you know, approaching and then, and then seeing. And obviously, you know, there are some kids who are going to be, you know, quite scared and, and, and will push back and that's okay. And then you'll respond and maybe be, you know, mm-hmm. keep a distance and, and maybe look to interact less and some kids will, you know, love it. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that for me is when we're working with a new carer who's going into a new environment, I really say, you know, be as authentic as yourself and as sensitive as possible. And especially when you first meet them, don't look to be treating them like they're some different kind of mm-hmm. person. I think that's a good baseline to start. And then obviously working with the individual because there will be things like challenges and complexities, which mean you do need to in- interact differently but the baseline should be just relaxed and normal. And I would say that for children who are intellectually disabled, they have a, an amazing radar for inauthenticity. Yeah, and, absolutely. And for people absolutely. not being not being genuine. And it's quite interesting. You can sometimes kind of see how good the adult is by how by how the kid's reacting. And that's that's not in any way saying that behaviour difficulties are due to adults. That's not what I'm mm. saying at all. But there is a sense in which they, they, they're, they're quite good detectors of bullshit, really, these kids. You know? Absolutely. And, and <laughs> well, I, I think that's very much what Jordan and I have talked about a couple of times now is that concept that if you don't, if, if in the case where language or verbal language is taken away, then the other mm-hmm. senses become much more um, alert and much more aware. But I also think what you just described, Jordan and Sarah, about how to begin a connection actually is the case for all humans. Mm-hmm. 
You know, exactly like, sure. you know, sure. like all humans can sense inauthenticity or not, mm-hmm. maybe not as sharply or maybe it takes a bit more time or maybe they've built up different rules mm-hmm. for themselves. But the idea of taking that out into the world and, and sort of committing that whoever I come across, my first interactions will be authentic and mm-hmm. friendly and patient and let the person get to, like how dogs sniff each other, you know, mm-hmm. like just get to know each other in a very mm-hmm. um sort of simple way before you start to kind of communicate in a more complicated mm. way. I think that would make the more complicated conversation more effective. Mm. And I think that that respect is something that is felt very early on if there's genuine you know, respect for the individual. And I think a lot of the times what we see is we work with high support individuals who are nonverbal, who don't have, you know, clearly explicit comprehension. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're not, you know, it's not, explicitly obvious what they're understanding and what they're not understanding. They may be, you know, looking up at the stars all the time and look like they're not understanding and therefore people will, you know, be nice and friendly for, you know, a few minutes and then go on to ignoring that person as if they're a fly on the wall. And what I've really begun to realize is that, like, you can see that someone's listening and they're processing how you're expecting them and are completely separate. So just because someone maybe isn't apparently focused in on what you're saying or responding when you're asking them a question or, or looking like they're engaging, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that they don't feel like they should be valued and I'm noticing when they're being valued. And that may present itself also differently. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it, with some kids, it's not necessarily a correlation of I'm not feeling respected, therefore I'm going to be, mm-hmm. I'm going to move away from you right now because we, as we know, you know, people who have special needs brains operate in, in really complex and, and beautifully mm-hmm. mysterious ways and, and it may present in a way that I'm not being respected now, and in four hours, I'm going to have a behavioral you know, mm-hmm. uh, challenge that's going to come out out of my frustration. Um, and that's also something that we really work with with new support workers because you that respect needs to manifest always and that responsiveness always. And really, you, that perception of kids that you, know, you guys have both beautifully spoken about, how you know they really are aware, isn't limited as well to immediate sort of, yeah, I'm going to show you really obviously if I like you or not. Um, which is why it's just so, which is so important. Why that first interaction from men always is just built in kind of respect and authenticity because you, you really don't know. I think there's also um, the, sort of the clinical psychologist in me would say that people develop through their childhood a, a sort of schema or an idea of themselves or of the world. So a schema might be something like the world is not safe or I'm I'm not lovable or I can't express my feelings or something like that. And I think one of the powers of the special school or the disability community is you see that. You see, there are kids who are developing a schema around um, maybe feeling a sense of shame, but particularly kids who maybe kind of acquired their disability through maybe a stroke at birth or, you know, or birth trauma or something like that. So they've kind of got a sense that maybe something's wrong. But you also then see a large number of kids who are intellectually disabled who, who, who can't articulate their schemas or have any understanding really of how, how they're viewing the world, but are supremely confident, feel supremely loved, feel very safe in the world that they're in. And I think that it's useful to think of it like that too because there are also kids who, who maybe who just don't feel safe because they're, they're so dysregulated or you know, there could be all sorts of different different factors too. So I, I like to kind of see it like that too. There's a there's a child at school who 
is um, it uses humour beautifully to kind of interact with people, but is also very, very um, limited in her ability to communicate anything else. Just she kind of uses words, you know, in a humorous way, and will, but but becomes very distressed at um, certain points in, in during her day through no fault of her own, um, and will often revert to kind of a sense of shame at that, mm. that time because she feels like she's kind of disconnected from people or she feels like she's let people down. Again, she can't articulate it, but it's that's the power of special, you know, because we can we, we can actually really sort of support her with that and say, no, look, we're here to help you and you're a great person and, you know. And that is the power because those, those feelings of shame mm. and letting people down are, are, are common to all mm. humans, mm. but not all humans are in an environment where someone's going to really nurture them mm. back to a place of feeling better. Mm-hmm. So it's, that's a, it's a yeah. you know, it's, it's a, I mean, with all the many challenges, it's, it, it, they are beautiful places mm. in terms of letting people really be who mm. they are. And I think the other thing about being able to express yourself, and again, we've talked about this, Jordan, is, so if you are nonverbal or what I learned through my new best friend, Chris Varney. You have mentioned him a bit. <laughs> <laughs> he knows, I'm, he knows I've, fan, I've got a fan crush on him. Um, he, he calls it non-speaking. I don't I mean, I know there's language around all these mm-hmm. things, but, you know, I'm going to go with him because Chris said it. Um, non-speaking. <laughs> then there are, you know, certain rules. But Sarah, you and I have talked a lot about for the kids and who are speaking mm-hmm. a lot, they still can't always express themselves in a way that um, is helpful to whoever's around and caring mm-hmm. for them. And I know in the case of Millie and actually my youngest as well that they don't really know what their emotions are. Mm. They'll be angry, which comes out in, you know, throwing mm-hmm. things and swearing and fairly sailor-like mm-hmm. swear words mm-hmm. um, for small people um, and throwing things and breaking things and then and there'll be frustration, although I don't know that they would say I'm frustrated, mm-hmm. and, and and happiness. But other than that, it may be sadness. But the ability to kind of get more articulate or nuanced about mm-hmm. those emotions, it doesn't help that they have language, a verbal mm-hmm. language, mm-hmm. because it's not, they can't use it. And maybe that's asking too much of kids that age and maybe it comes, it's a developmental thing. But I think we can't assume that if you are speaking, mm. that therefore you don't have communication challenges. Well, also the, the neurology would tell us that when we are flooded by emotion, that the amygdala goes off and the rational kind of language basis of the, well, the bases of the brain are turned off. Mm. And that's relevant for parents too, isn't it? Because yeah. we, get, yeah. we, we, get, we get triggered or we, we become very emotional and then you end up with two people who actually can't quite rationalize and yet what do we always try and do when kids have lost it or as, as I say to them as they you know if they've flipped their lid what we try and do is use language to calm them down mm. and actually sometimes that's the last thing we should be doing we really just should be co-regulating or taking a break or doing whatever we can to let the lid come down let the lid come down I'd like to talk a little bit about parents, Sarah, if, if that's mm-hmm. okay, because, um, of course. you know, while it's so fascinating talking about the children, I do, as I say, I do think parents don't get enough um, discussion. What is your view on the, the current take-up of parents living with these kind of challenges to take up therapy or to take up other self-care 
offerings, Mm -hmm. whatever might suit the individual. How much do you think parents are doing that and what um, would be the benefit if there was more of it? Look, I think there's a huge focus on therapy for the child. If I'm honest, I and I won't be popular for saying this, but if I'm honest, I sometimes think that that's not always the thing that people need. Mm. I mean, I certainly I certainly think there's a role for speech um, therapy, occupational therapy, psychology, physiotherapy, what you know, drama therapy. There's certainly a role, but really, what parents need is practical support, self care, sleep. Mm. Those you know, mm. all the things that they're, they're often denied. And, of course, we all bring our own experiences of parenting to parenting and we all bring our own schemas and ideas about life to parenting. And quite often with parenting, we don't quite get what we thought we would. And, you know, we also often are parenting with somebody else who has brought in their own ideas and their own experiences too. So I think it's a really complex thing. And there are very skilled psychologists out there who can support parents in navigating all of that, particularly if the child has a disability or a complexity. Mm. Yeah. And I think it's actually almost the very same topic we were just talking about, about being able to articulate how you're feeling, what your feelings are and what your needs are. Mm-hmm. And as a parent, when you're so busy and, and trying to juggle all the normal stuff plus the extra stuff, mm-hmm. and to your point, if your you know, amygdala's up or your anxiety's mm-hmm. up, then the ability to really think deeply about what's happening for you emotionally, mm-hmm. very hard to do unless you're sitting with someone else who can help you do that. Mm-hmm. I know I'm obsessed with therapy and I, I think I've, I've said to people before, you need therapy. And they say, I don't really, I know that's your thing, Anna, but it's not my mm-hmm. thing. So I've, I'm, I'm conscious of the fact mm-hmm. that it might be different for different people, but at least acknowledging that parents Mm-hmm. owe it to themselves to give themselves whatever version of that kind mm-hmm. of self-care and self-nurturing is. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes I think quite often actually when I think I take the children to, I don't know, bounce or mm-hmm. I imagine equine therapy, that kind of thing, and I think I want to do that. Mm-hmm. The child's there doing the thing and learning and growing and feeling better and the parent's in the car like, I don't know, online shopping or something really. And I think we're just missing the fact that the parents need for the, for the calming emotional mm-hmm. self-love stuff, need it just as much but we don't sort mm-hmm. of expect it. We don't think we deserve it. We don't even factor it into how we um, structure our mm-hmm. days and our weeks. But I also think it's sometimes about saying to parents, is it is it actually really helpful to drag your screaming child to let's your, use your example equine therapy or um, I don't know nothing against equine therapy no, but you know or, or know whatever what whatever activity it is because someone sort of said that it might be a good idea mm. or you know to have a therapy dog because someone said it's a good idea and the number of parents who are just exhausted by the onerous kind of daily. <laughs> grind of taking kids to things that they're not really getting that much out of and not not enjoying. So it's also about kind of accepting just the limitations of life Mm. and trying just to take stuff out of your life too. You know, there's a lot of pressure on on parents with kids with invisible disabilities or disabilities to somehow make it better. And sometimes it's also just accepting that you're not going to make everything better. Um, and that's where, for me, therapy is very effective because it is working through that grief process, isn't it? Like wanting to fix it is part of that process before you mm. get to accepting it, mm. depending on your, your inclination. But mm-hmm. you can spend a lot of time in that trying, 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 trying to fix, fix, fix. Mm. 
And um, who was it that was we were talking to? Oh, it might have been Chris. Unfortunately, Jordan missed that interview, but you're going to love it. She loves I him. Love, <laughs> I do love him. <laughs> but he says that, you know, um, one of his, so Chris founded the ICANN network and he is autistic himself and he's try, his goal is to rethink the way we humans and autistic people and non-autistic people think about autism. And he says that more and more they're trying not to shift the world to what, to fit, to fit, the, the neurotypical world or the mm-hmm. normal world in inverted commas, but to actually just try and accommodate the children in their own world as much mm-hmm. as possible, which is the opposite of fixing. Mm-hmm. It's accommodating, mm-hmm. isn't it? And I think that's beautiful. I think mm-hmm. it's, that was a new idea to me. I hadn't mm-hmm. really thought about that, but it's become quite um, central to my thinking mm-hmm. at the moment about how much do we have to push you into our world, mm-hmm. you know. That's exactly right. And if you spend, um, if you know, if you're if you're at a special school between I don't know, 8.45 and 9.30 in the morning, you'll see the kids who are in their world who basically jump up and down with glee because the bus has come and they they can see who's on the bus and who isn't and who, you know, turn around in circles and flap their arms and, and do all sorts of things that would be considered really odd in our world. Mm. But in their world, it is just the highlight of the day. It does look like joy in their faces, though, when they do that, oh, yeah. doesn't it? Oh, yeah. I think inclusivity is a really interesting term and what you've touched on Anna is really interesting because I think that for a long time inclusivity was seen as bringing in and we're open to bringing you into our world and Mm -hmm. we're open-minded and we're diverse and we're going to make sure that you can come in. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think what we've seen lately or there's definitely a movement about inclusivity being an outward expression and inclusivity being like we're actually going to go tap into your world as you mm-hmm. tap into ours and make it a, mm-hmm. a together world and recognize that the strengths and complexities and mysteries of an individual with special needs shouldn't just be accommodated for when they're brought into your world, but really explored in their own right mm-hmm. and seeing how you can connect with, with that. And I think that the recognition of the, of the other world is having as much merit and value as what you're bringing into what you see as your world is the way forward in terms of really recognizing how to work together to, mm-hmm. to build a new, inclusive, a truly inclusive society rather than just making adjustments so that someone else mm-hmm. can fit into what you're doing. You know, inviting the, the kid with autism to your party isn't isn't really inclusive. Mm-hmm. Changing your party so that it's friendly to people of all sensitivities and abilities is, is more friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's also not the best example because I think there's also more you can learn from the actual individual and what, and what they like and how they see things. But I think that that is a really interesting point um, and definitely a really progressive way forward of thinking about inclusivity is not just being something that is mm. inward, but actually something that you're going out to, to see. Well, I would say, I mean, I've worked in over 30 different schools across the world, and I would say the most inclusive school I work in is the special school. Mm. And I know that sounds strange, but we, you know, are really honouring people's personality. We're really trying to um, work with their limitations and their strengths. We are we acknowledge their personality. We accept it. We respect it, and we promote joy. And I think a real bugbear of mine is the sort of assumption that people with disabilities should be able to work or need to be able to work post eighteen, because and I mean there's plenty of there's plenty of people who will and who do, want to. who who do that and who want <clears throat> to, but there's also plenty of people who would actually be phenomenally exhausted by that experience or would find it incredibly stressful or would 
you know, be better engaged in a program where they can access the community and, and have friends. And, you know, kids at Port Phillip, nonverbal kids at Port Phillip actually have friends. <laughs> you know, they have friends. Mm. And that, to me, is about inclusion rather than exactly as you say, Jordan, that kind of including the child in a birthday party because that somehow means they've got friends. It doesn't mean they've got friends. It just means that they're isolated within the birthday party particularly. And, and somehow mm, yeah. I think that that would, I mean, I hope, I don't mean to sound mm. sort of disrespectful here, but sometimes I I think that people think, oh, let's do the right thing mm-hmm. and invite the autistic child because, mm-hmm. you know, that makes me a good citizen. And mm-hmm. I think they probably mean it in their heart. Mm-hmm. But um, And that's part of what we're trying to do is, is to help people understand sure. what does it mean if you're gonna if you want to help and and invite one or several autistic mm-hmm. children to your party, understand what how that will work mm-hmm. well. Not just do it and then feel better, but really understand. Talk to the parents. We're gonna do this. Mm-hmm. We're gonna do this between this time and this time. And if you want to come, you know, mm-hmm. that sort of thing is would actually show a more of a genuine desire to try and make that work. Or or maybe it's about realizing that. And again, it's all based on the individual, but maybe it's about realising that the best thing to do is to meet in a park where mm. there's sort of structured activity for half an hour. You know, so it's just, it, yeah, it, look, we've got a long way to come, but I, I guess my definition of inclusion is very much the special school kind of model, which is an irony of acceptance and joy and respect. Yeah. And uh, Sarah, this has been mm. such a beautiful conversation. I know we only asked for an hour of your time. <laughs> I'm sure we could go on. I feel like today we've really hit on some beautiful themes that are going to continue to come up around authenticity mm-hmm. and around joy. And and I, I love, we've got to have a new word, Jordan, for inclusion, don't we? I think it sounds like we need either to redefine it or find a new word that describes that outside in inclusion. I love that. Mm. And I think yeah. also I really believe very deeply with every story that I hear that the stories can apply to all humans. Mm. Like I, this, I mm. think this story is quite funny maybe to end on. Um, Millie was having an interview for a Year 7 school and she had to do it on Zoom because, um, you know, we couldn't mm-hmm. go in. And because I mean, one of the things that I love about her version of autism, and I know they were different, it's similar to Rodney who we interviewed about his boy, mm-hmm. Does not so much fear of authority. So it doesn't really, and we talked about this briefly, not in such a way that it's destructive, but in such a way that she sees herself just as equal as anyone else who she's talking to. And in her interview with the, with the you know, the head of the middle school and someone else who you would have thought that children would be a little bit nervous and a little bit sort of just try and say the right thing. And um, initially she wasn't really into it, not that keen, didn't really give very much. But then when they started talking about her special interest, which is AFL, she sort of perked up and the, one of the women said to her, oh, um, oh what's your favourite team? And Ellie said, oh, the Hawks, I love them, blah, blah, blah. And then she said, who's your team? And the woman said, I think she said Collingwood or Essendon. And Millie said, boo! <laughs> As if she was at the footy. But I love that because I thought... You know what, that's really authentic. It really gives you a sense of her nature. It was very funny. Mm -hmm. It was not quite appropriate. Mm -hmm. But the woman got it and she laughed and we all laughed Mm -hmm. and I just thought, to me, that must have been a more fun interview for her than to interview all the other kids who said all the right things and ticked all the boxes and talked about their chess club or something. Mm -hmm. And I think moments like that I feel really proud of Mm -hmm. and for me... Even if some people think they're inappropriate, I think, you know what, this is actually the world that would be a better world for us all to be in where we can be really open, really honest, still polite, but, you know, really show ourselves. I thought that was funny. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. Jordan, have you got any other questions that you 
Yeah, look, I do. I do have one more. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I find really interesting is, uh, and you would definitely, you know, have a lot to say about this, I'm sure, and know a lot more about it than me. But it feels like there's been a lot more of an emphasis, maybe in the last few years, about understanding that a, a child with special needs sits within, you know, a unit, and mm-hmm. and everyone's affected. And, and like what you guys have been discussing a lot, the 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 parents, mm-hmm. the siblings really everyone is working together and affected by the complexities and the challenges. Mm-hmm. Is that understanding of kind of working together with the whole unit rather than kind of just directly with, you know, the child and that being an isolated mm-hmm. relationship, is that something that's changed over your time or has that always been, been present in regards to, to psychology or, or working with students and, and children with special needs? Well, I think I, mean, I think it's a really good question. It's probably my area of, one of my areas of interest is working with parents. I think when you have a setting like a special school, as a psychologist, your, your, your client, if you like, is pretty much the child. And you will obviously work with parents, but more around strategies for the child. I think in private practice or in a more clinical sense, the, the understanding of the parents is absolutely crucial to your work with with a child because again as I alluded to earlier you have so many dynamics playing out so within my kind of close circle I know of you know couples who have very different you know who have different parenting styles or who are triggered by different experiences or maybe one of the parents has an undiagnosed disorder which is contributing you know which is maybe where the kids have got the disorder from and I think there's a there's a whole sense of again the schemas playing out. So you know parents who kind of believe that you know it's really um, important to be quite permissive and and quite kind because there's something wrong with the child. I hear that over and over again. Then I also have other parents who are feel very judged by their own parents. Um, so there's a there's a whole sort of sense of complexity. Siblings are also you know a very complex kind of add on to all of this too. So yeah, that's a it's a very very interesting area and I do think that you know there's a there's a lot of grief as Anna said, there's also a lot of a lot of judgment. You know, maybe I caused this or I'm not handling this right or or whatever it might be. Yeah. Um Sarah, this has been an absolute delight. We have started our conversations in this mm-hmm. podcast with autism, but we intend to bring in some of the other neurodiversity mm-hmm. um, challenges that families live with. And some of our guests have agreed to come back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I won't put you on the spot, but no, we'd I'd love, love to. to have you back if you mm-hmm. would. Um, I think this conversation about the the community, the sort of the family unit, the school, the, mm-hmm. the broader community unit, and how that whole dynamic really is very intertwined. Mm-hmm. And ADHD is going to be a topic that we're going to start talking about soon. Mm-hmm. I've been, oh, here come my kids. Mm-hmm. That's a good note upon which to say thank you so much, Sarah. It's been a pleasure. It's absolute pleasure. And I will I will just also say ADHD is so misunderstood. Yeah. So I think it's a really, really good conversation to have. I'm excited yeah. about that one too. Fantastic. Thank you, Thank Jordan. you so, so much, Sarah. It was great to chat. Thanks, Sarah. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Bye.